0: welcome to every horror movie on netflix the show where we watch review and discuss every horror movie on netflix i'm chris here with patrick Hello. And here with Steven. Hi. And we have a really special episode this week. As you know, if you've been listening to the show, a few weeks ago, we reviewed The Car and The Car Road to Revenge in a special double feature episode. And uh, we got an uh, unexpected email from the director of The Car Road to Revenge, G.J. Ekternkamp and he listened to the episode and he wanted to add some context uh and sit down with us and talk about the production of the movie and uh his thoughts on how it turned out
1: yeah i mean this was uh uh, quite a shocker uh to hear from him especially because we gave the car road revenge some fairly mixed reviews mine were more mixed than uh you guys uh so it was a delight to hear from him and uh and a delight to talk to him. I think this is an exciting conversation that y'all are going to enjoy.
0: Yeah. He, he was seemed to be a really good sport about it and he just kind of wants to chat about his side of the story. Um, so we called him and please forgive, you know, the, the audio quality. If it's a little spotty, we'll find out, but enjoy this interview with, uh, us and GJ Camp, director of the car road to revenge. We're very excited to welcome G.J. Camp here. He reached out to us after our last episode and uh, wanted a rebuttal uh, to our (laughs) review of The Car, Road to Revenge. Uh, And we're super excited to have him here because, uh, as you know, if you listen to the episode, uh, that movie raised a lot of questions in our minds, and uh, hopefully we can get some uh, insight into them. Uh, So to just start off, uh, G.J., uh, why don't you just uh, briefly introduce yourself and kind of explain where you were in your career at the time you started working on The Car Road to Revenge. Oh,
2: God. (laughs) Where I was in my career, you're you're starting, like, right hitting me in the balls. Um, Okay. (laughs) It's a safe space. (laughs) So, you know, I had done, you know, when I was first started making stuff, I was I was shooting stuff that I was trying to post on like a website because I figured that was the best way of distributing things. And, you know, like once there was digital video and once there was streaming, I thought, well, as a, as a guy just starting out, I'll just make stuff and put it online and hope for the best. And the first thing I ended up making was this like long form documentary about my parents, even though I, I didn't really want to, it just kind of, for, I don't want to get into the whole story, but I got sort of talked into it. And I was like, uh, one of those assholes who makes a documentary about his parents because he thinks it's that interesting, but it's not. Um, but I guess it turned out that it was more interesting than I'd realized. And that was kind of my first big project. And then I made, uh, a, I was in the works to make a remake of it uh, with like famous people. It ended up getting made with Renee Russo and Oliver Platt. Um, but in the meantime, while I was trying to get that off the ground, I got um, an offer to make this film for Roger Corman, uh, which uh, was, he had, he had gotten all these uh, rights to these um, films that he shot in the 80s uh, that were Vietnam movies that were shot in the Philippines. And he was working with this guy named, uh, what the fuck was his name? Uh, Sergio Santiago. Uh, he had worked with Roger on all these movies, and they were all called like "Eye of the Eagle" and you know "Flight of the Flight of the um, Tanks" and you know whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a big straight-to-video market, kind of in the wake of Platoon. And the way these movies were made is they would basically take the same action scenes and reuse them over and over and over again. So they'd blow up the same train or blow up the same helicopter, but it would be a different cast of new characters, and they would just repurpose this footage. And so you'd kind of see as the movies went on, they went from like having a few action scenes that were shot originally to being completely made out of recycled footage with new characters that had been shot over the course of a few days cut in there. You know, um... And so he was like, I want you to make a movie using this footage, and we're going to shoot just the least amount possible and recycle as much of this stuff as you can. And I was like, this sounds like hell, and I want to do it. I mean, like, <laughs> it was like, the, the challenge of it seemed just awful. And being like a masochist, I was like, yes, I want to do this. So it ended up being made as a video game movie and this was at the time kind of a cool idea. No one had done like the Wreck-It Ralph sort of meta video game movie and my idea was that they'd be in like a Call of Duty game and they could keep dying and coming back and that way I could use the same clips over and over and over again and weirdly enough it was it ended up going to Sundance which was crazy but nothing really happened people hated it and I was struggling to get this Frank and Cindy movie off the ground when he when he came back and offered me Death Race 2050 and I knew it was gonna be an awful experience in a lot of ways. Like I knew it was gonna be very, very, very tough to make a movie with absolutely no money in Lima, Peru. And I still said, I can't not do this. Like, I have to do this. This is a remake of Death Race 2000. But I knew that going down there, there would be absolutely no resources. You know, I, They don't really have an infrastructure in Lima to shoot a race car movie or an action movie but everyone was super willing to try you know and so we did our best you know they had like this one foot and this one intestine and every time there was a kill scene they'd come out with a foot in the intestine and be like mm-hmm. here you go <laughs> i like all right let's th- throw it on the car what are you gonna do but the good thing that came out of it for me is that i guess universal had been bankrolling death race 2050 and they they were like very pleasantly surprised that i was able to make anything out of it you know at some point they were getting dailies and they were like oh no oh no what have we done like this this is gonna be a shit show but i got in there and like called in every favor i could and like edited the crap out of it and kind of used the same stock footage approach that i'd taken with the previous movie because i was like well this action is so bad it might as well be stock footage you know so i tried to piece this jigsaw together to make something you know and Universal immediately like kind of became a fan. And they were like, hey, you know, like we've got another project in the works and we're ready to shoot like right away. And I thought, well, you know, I don't know if this is what I set out to do with my life is make straight to video sequels to Universal properties that no one remembers, but it's, it's work and it's, it's fun. And you know, like, hey, maybe I could do this. And maybe if I one day I make a really good one that stands out, then I could cross over into you know more mainstream stuff. Mm-hmm. so I guess I was kind of excited but also if you were to say where the career aspect of it was it was like I'd found myself on this road that you know seemed like it could be promising but it wasn't precisely what i set out to do and so they gave me this script for the car and it was like boots to the ground like ready to shoot you know ready to go we we're gonna do this and you know after just trying for five years to get Frank and Cindy made, which finally happened. But I was like, I can't, I'm not rich. I can't wait, you know, decades between projects. Like if something's in front of me, I got to do it. So they had the script, but the car in the script, so first of all, it was like weirdly futuristic and I didn't really know why. And the car was the hero. It was basically RoboCop in this original script. And it was all about how they, this couple gets married, he gets killed. And then the car goes around, like basically protecting her and following her. And it goes outside of her window at night and plays love songs to her. And she gets in the car at one point and touches it. And is like, is this you? Is it really you? And I thought, okay, well, who am I to buck the system here? You know, this is their movie, they wanna make it. But, you know, I was like, and it couldn't be any further from the original, but that wasn't my place to decide. I mean, you know, this was a job. And so I was like, well, you can't, I mean, of all the things you're going to do, you can't have the car be the good guy. I mean, if I could just fight for one thing to change, please don't make the car the good guy. So they allowed me to do this rewrite of it, and they encouraged me. They said, make it wacky, make it nutty, make it death race, make it stupid and funny and, you know, cynical and indie. Like, make this make this a, a G.J. movie. And I was like, all right, fuck yeah, I'll make it a G.J. movie. But you have to understand, I was still in the constraints of, like, the original sort of basic plot that they had. So since the car was always stalking her in a good way, I was like, well, it would be very easy to make it kind of stalk her in a bad way, like make yeah. him a, 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 a controlling ex-boyfriend in a toxic relationship. And even though it's protecting her, it's only protecting her as far as it thinks it can have her. And then at the end, when it realizes it can't, it finally goes full bloody rampage and just it becomes an, you know, the bad guy he always was. And I and also like, you know, make it kind of funny and stupid. And I was like, yes, I'm all about this. And so the whole time I'm thinking, how are they letting me get away with this? Like, how am I making this movie right now in Bulgaria? Like, like I never thought that Universal would hand me the reins to do something this goofy, because I wanted to be RoboCop. I wanted to be like street punks, trashing cars, you know, stupid bad guys with mohawks, you know, <laughs> like I was all about making it like a Verhoeven film. Um, and then the long and the short of it is that they finally showed like the first edit to their bosses, and their bosses, I guess, had never read my version of the script, and were like, "What the fuck is this? What is this movie?" <laughs> and so I was out. They got rid of me and took over, basically, completely re-edited the film did all the music, did all the color, did all this bad ADR stuff where they were like, there can never be a point where someone's not telling you what's happening. So like in all the driving scenes, they're like, I'm turning left. No, I'm I'm turning right. The car is behind me. Now the car is in front of me. (laughs) And they did this color correction where you can't see anything. And they put all this generic music. Like I had the Ramones in there. And, you know, I was like being like indie hipster thinking I was going to make this cool, quirky movie. And then they were like, oh, dear God, what is this quirk? But the worst thing they did was they cut out the lead. Like, it was all about the girl. It was all about Daria. And there's all these scenes with her where you sort of understand sort of her journey and her relationship with this guy and her sort of toxic past and all of these things. And these producers were like, fuck her, why is this woman talking? Get her out of there. And so the whole central story about this toxic relationship, like, just was gone. And it was just them sort of trying to get to the next action scene as quickly as possible. And, and the funny thing is, is at the end of the day, I didn't hate what they did. Because I was like, well, it moves, you know, it's fast. I mean, like, it doesn't make any sense. But you know, at <laughs> least, it at least it never wastes any time. I guess I can't, you know, that's, that's the movie they wanted. But obviously, if I'd have known that's the movie they wanted, I would have started off doing things so differently, you know, like, like, it's such a weird thing to see that you had the silly intention with these goofy bad guys, right.
3: But it's played so straight that it makes no
2: sense, right?
3: (laughs) It's like, so none of that is intentional. The stuff of the central relationship too, I'm glad you cleared that up because I mean, that raised a lot of questions for us. Like I really didn't understand what the vibe was between those two at all. It definitely felt like there was a giant chunk missing right out the gate.
1: Well, and we were also so puzzled by, you know, that whole element of, yeah, are we supposed to be rooting for the car or not? And it makes so much more sense now that we know that there was that push and pull between you and the studio.
0: We're, we're going to start a hashtag
3: for release the Ektron Camp cut.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: well, let's, so, I, I want to I back up a, uh, quite a bit, actually. Like, do you have any sense of why there was interest being drummed up in a sequel to the car over 40 years later. I mean, it's a beloved film. It's, it's, it's kind of a big, you know, it's kind of iconic as a cult film now, but I, I still don't see any kind of mainstream appeal for that concept returning.
2: I mean, look, I was trying to be loyal to Universal. I really thought that they would, they called me in there and I spoke to their boss and she was like, look, we, we fucked you. You know, this was, lack of oversight on our part. We took, you know, obviously whatever your vision was and the subtext was your vision sucks, but whatever it was, we know it was important to you and we know it must hurt to see us do this to something you put that much time and effort into. And don't worry, we're going to make this right. And then the lady says to me, but I'm still hurting. And I need time. I need time to heal. And I'm like, you're hurting. I'm done. Like you just killed my entire career. I'm over. (laughs) Like I got nothing. But my last film is a fucking I don't know what it is. (laughs) I'm hurting. But I didn't say that. I'm just like, yes, 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 please heal. I want you to heal. And so I've been kind of like keeping my mouth shut. But at the end of the day, two years go by and I realize they're never going to talk to me again. So I don't know what I have blues actually telling the truth about it. But The fact of the matter is, is they have a giant list of titles that they own and they're just looking for what they're going to make next, you know. So somebody goes through the list and they go, oh, the car. And then they go, maybe we'll do this one. You know, this has some recognition. I think for some reason there was some game called Road to Revenge or something called Road to Revenge that they also felt like had some recognition. And they're like, people will talk about this because it's something that's been established and then they call up some writer and go hey write the car and and you know that's how it happens i mean i was trying to pitch a remake a water world to them the whole time <laughs> like for real yeah it's just that's what the department does the department takes their existing titles mm-hmm. and somebody picks one to remake and then they remake it and they hope that because it was based on something that existed the marketing will kind of you know, it'll market itself more than they'll have to dump money into getting people interested in it. But they made a big mistake taking a film that, uh, you know, was such a specific thing that people loved, and then creating something that was completely dissimilar to it in every way possible, they were only going to alienate those people, you know. (laughs) And so most of the vitriol you see is from people that were expecting one thing and getting another. And, And in my experience, that's kind of what a lot of criticism is. It has a lot to do with expectations and how a person feels like what they think they're going to get versus what they get. And I think it's very hard for them to judge it based on its own merits um, because of that. So that's kind of why it got made like somebody at the 1440 was like, Oh, what about this one? And then somebody was like, okay, let's do it.
0: But someone actually wrote this, wrote the original version of the script as a car sequel. It wasn't like they had a script about something else and changed it to fit the car property.
2: Not that I'm, yeah, I don't think, I am i don't think, I mean, I don't know the guy, he lives in Florida, uh, he probably hates me for what I did to his script, <laughs> <laughs> where the car was the hero, you know? Um, I th- I, I'm i assuming that's what he came, I mean, unless it's possible he had a sci-fi car movie that he'd been working on, but I think the, that would be an enormous coincidence, you know, if that were the case, that he just happened to also have something like that. You know, and the connection to the original was always sort of tenuous. In his version of it, he thought he was going to get Josh Brolin to play the mechanic, but Josh Brolin wanted absolutely nothing to do with it. And basically, they go down a list of they go down a list of people, like names or cameos, and they just offer it to the top one, and they move their way through the bottom. And so the fact that it's um, Ronnie Cox is not was never because somebody thought that this was a tie-in to the original because mm-hmm. he's the same guy. It was like Ronnie Cox will do it. Ah, wow, we're three days out from shooting. Let's go.
1: Was it really decided that late in the process? Yeah. Wow. Wow.
3: That solves I mean, another mystery because his, um, yeah, his appearance was quite baffling at the end of
2: that. You're thinking too much about it. I know. <laughs> I know. Make I know.
3: Sense of it. That's what we do, though.
1: <laughs> so, what was your relationship to the original car movie? Were you a fan going into this project?
2: You know, it's funny. I had. I had always, I have always been obsessed with cult movies. I I had this book in college called uh, Cult. Uh, I have it right here. What is it? Cult flicks and trash picks, and this was my bible. I would go to the local video store and rent five of these movies a night on VHS and just watch them. Um, I considered myself a sort of cult movie aficionado, and I had never even heard of the car. Like I had no idea it was a thing. Like I. I mean, of course, we I watched it a ton of times, but I think as far as cult movies go, it's it's not one of the best ones. I hate to say, if I'm being honest, you know, I mm-hmm. I wouldn't you know have a party and invite all my friends over and be like, "You gotta watch this one." Oh, we did that actually,
3: <laughs> 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 but but I can understand that it's not for everyone.
2: <laughs> I mean, it's fine, but it's not Death Race 2000, or you no, know, no. like it's not. It you wouldn't call it like an iconic, you know, uh, cult movie. It's it is what it is, yeah. but yeah, that's that's sort of how he ended up involved in it. And, and, you know, and, and another thing that like, I guess it's funny, it's just like people don't realize that, and that's why I'm kind of excited about even, I don't care about the Superman movie or whatever it is, the Zack Snyder cut, but I like the fact that people are now sort of becoming aware that it's not necessarily the, the final product can't be hung on one person's neck, like that there's this entire team of people that are all involved in it. And, and to get the awareness out that it might not be necessarily your vision that makes it to the end I think is a good thing you know like totally rather than crucifying every director on earth who you know I had to answer to a studio like you know be aware that maybe they didn't make every decision you know
1: Mm-hmm. so what were some of the key changes in the movie where you just went what the fuck what were some of the biggest surprises for you
2: after I saw their version of it you mean yeah yeah uh well the ADR was mortifying <laughs> You know, they hide, like, I don't know who does it, but like, they, they were like, writing their own dialogue. And so every time they, so you can hear the audio quality changes. And all of a sudden, the characters are saying things that are like, really not good, you know, like, like, you'll see this cutaway and you'll hear one of the characters be like, the important thing is that we get the chip the chip is the key you know you're like oh that's or you know or like even the part in the beginning where he like hands her a baseball bat to beat up the guy that's kidnapped her in that opening scene and he goes batter up (laughs) (laughs) like somebody was like we got to add a batter up there (laughs) um that the adr is pretty bad i mean obviously i was sad to see that they cut basically the protagonist completely out of the film and so it, the whole ending makes absolutely no sense. I mean, when she's like, yeah, I'm tough now. Like, we had spent, you know, pages building up to the fact that she was this incredibly dark, disturbed person who, you know, was trying to move on from this bad relationship while carrying all this rage. And then it's like, oh, okay, she's bad now. Oh, I get it. Well, sure, you know. <laughs> um, and, you know, and then maybe, yeah, like the the lack of audio design was another one. Like, you know, they, they there's this complete lack of, like, Like with Death Race, that was one of the good things is that even though we had kind of crap in production, we had great post. And so you're able to kind of like attack the the experience with as much, you know, sci-fi sound effects and, you know, things like that. But with this one, it's like sort of dead audio wise. And, you know, one of the things that I've been watching The Expanse lately, and it's funny, The Expanse looks a lot like the car. I feel like the car actually takes place in the world of The Expanse. And there's all this, like, tech that you're supposed to have. And you make a list of all the, this is going to be a hologram. This is going to be a laser. This is going to be a smartphone with with a projection. And what happens is you get a list of, like, you have 300 special effects. And then they come at you and they go, well, you can only afford 100 of them. And so you've shot all this stuff where they're, like, swiping and tapping. But nothing's actually happening, you know? (laughs) 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 And I see that in The Expanse, too. For every, like, three swipes they do, like one of them doesn't do anything (laughs) (laughs) Mm. um but yeah you know just kind of the main changes in the story i mean i'm sure that like the film i would have made probably would have been very great either but at least it would have been kind of unique i guess you know it might have been still sort of a turkey maybe i don't know but it it would at least been somebody would have liked it you know whereas i feel like they did something that like is like a solid eh,
3: you know it's like eh. Well, we I think we picked up on a lot of your aspirations. You you listened to the review and like we no we did mention RoboCop. You know we we talked quite a bit about Verhoeven. We saw a lot of that in there. It just felt like the world wasn't as fleshed out as it possibly could be. What you said, yeah, the for that. There just wasn't the money for it,
2: and there wasn't like there was a lot of stuff that was in the backstory of how the world had what the world was and all that got cut out, you know. Like the idea with the death, the, the the microwave tube that comes down yeah. is that the the legal system had been changed in in a comically verhoven way to uh, not guilty, guilty and really guilty. And if you were really guilty, <laughs> like beyond a shadow of a doubt, they just killed you on the spot like why waste the time. You know, it's so all the all the basically the jurors had an app that said, guilty, not guilty, really guilty. <laughs> it's like, it was, supposed, it was supposed to be goofy. And it's not like I would have said like, oh, if we're gonna remake the car, we gotta make it a, a goofy Robocop thing. But after reading the original script, I was like, that's what this wants to be. Let's push it in that direction as much as possible, you know? And the funny thing is you guys keep talking about a guy riding it. Most of the dialogue was actually written by my wife. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Yeah, she's, she, I always give her scripts because she rewrites all the female characters because I find that most men writing women are egregious. So I let her take a pass at it. And then, you know, I think she does a really good job with it. And I think it's funny as she was trying to write these detective scenes. And I think she was kind of like, "What well, of the detectives on CSI sound like, I don't know. Like, how's your wife? How's that <laughs> barbecue? You know? <laughs> so, it wasn't so much that she was like, Oh, I'm brilliant. She was like, "I guess this is how guys talk."
0: So,
2: oh. <laughs> and I was like, "It works. I'm into it. It's better than nothing. Better, than, you know, better than nothing."
0: <laughs> well, we'll we'll take the L on that one. Um, <laughs> this is very dis- demystifying, though, um, or explains so much because, yeah, the the main thing about that movie was just the the tone. Like, we couldn't understand why you have the Ozzy Osbourne villain. But it's played so straight, and, and it wasn't joyless. supposed to be. It wasn't supposed <laughs> to
2: be at all. I mean, there was a whole scene with the cowboy, where super funny. It's the bad guy from Death Race, and he's doing this cowboy thing, and it's like playing this like punk rock bluegrass cowboy music, and he's like, does and there's this whole wild west scene where he tries to face down the car, but his own guys <laughs> pull up and gun him down before he can draw his gun. Like it was supposed to be silly, you know. That, that was what I was going for, and that's what I was instructed to do. It's just. What, it ended up being this odd hybrid where they tried to get it all out there cut it all out but you can't cut all of it out the guy's still wearing a top hat the guy's still a cowboy <laughs> <you know?
1: laughs> so that was one of the elements of course that really fascinated us so much was that group of henchmen and and just the sort of motley crew there and how they all came from such interesting uh, sort of archetypes, you know, you have the, as Chris said, the Ozzy Osbourne guy and the cowboy. Can you tell us a little bit about how you conceived that, uh, that group?
2: Well, okay. So the original script, they were called, I believe, Ash, Bash, Slash, and (laughs) Colt. And so I just was running with that. I'm like, if we're going to have Ash, Bash, Slash, and Colt, they're going to be like mini bosses from a Nintendo game. And then let's make them and let's let's run with it, you know, and and make them into, you know, what they're meant to be, which is like the pyro, the knife guy, the brute, and the gun guy. Mm-hmm. So they were already kind of written like that. So I just said let's let's not make the names rhyme, but let's kind of run with it. And then you have these very excited, you know, costumers, you know, and they show up and they're like giving you all these pictures and. And, you know, like, you think, I don't know, well, it's probably more fun to go with the the better looking, more detailed costume than it is to just put them all in black or something. So, and given that the tone was silly and, you know, RoboCop, I thought, yeah, let's run with it. And then, you know, they cut out all the jokes and then it just is weird. (laughs) So, yeah.
3: I have a burning question. Um, yeah. I think the most memorable moment of the movie for all three of us was the moment when the car takes flight. Yeah, yes. uh, was that you like, can you explain the, the mechanics of that? I would love to I would love to actually okay. because one of the one of the biggest
2: things that I feel like people don't realize watching movies is the existence of the second unit okay so yeah so when you're talking about you know so and so's you know this great and directed this action scene phenomenally nine times out of ten they didn't nine times out of ten a second unit did that um in a movie like this they kind of split you up where they go out and they do basically anything that doesn't involve seeing the actors and they're shooting a lot of that stuff concurrently while you're working with the actors so a lot of the um a lot of the car action scenes you see in any movie wasn't actually directed by the person who's directing the film, it's directed by the second unit director who sort of specializes in action and works with the team of like stuntmen. So you don't know what they're gonna give you at the end of the day. You come home that day and you look at the dailies and you go either like, oh, wow, they nailed it. Or you go, my God, that's not even the right car. And then you find the storyboards you made in the trash before they left the building, you know? so so it's funny it's like you watch it and i'll watch it and i'll see an action scene they'll be like oh i did a good job there or they did a good job there or i really blew it there or they really blew it there you know it's it's it it is what it is and when you're making a low budget movie the the people who are sort of responsible for the the local production like the the production company that's taking it on they're the money people and they know how much money that you have and you kind of don't really know it's very abstract like they don't tell you on a low budget movie, like they don't break it down and go, okay, well, you can have this car crash or this fist fight, only one or the other, you know? (laughs) Like, if they did do that, it would probably be a lot easier to prioritize. But instead what they do is they act like they're gonna kind of give you everything. You know, they sort of, you know, bill it, like you're gonna have these amazing stunts and everything's gonna be what it is on paper. And then either they tell you the day of, it's not possible because you can't afford it. Or the second unit goes out, kind of phones it in and comes back and goes, hey, that's what you got. Um, So in the case of that scene, It was supposed to be done the way it was done in the original movie, which was the car was actually loaded into a giant cannon, right? So there's this big cannon that shoots this massive blast of compressed air and literally was able to, in the original movie, actually launch a real car flipping over the hoods of a bunch of police cars. And I thought they kept saying that's what they were going to do. You know, that's how it was supposed to go down. But instead, they just shot the car kind of pulling up and driving off and were like, ah, we'll do it with CGI. And that ended up being what happened with that is that I was expecting this amazing stunt and when I saw it, I was like, oh, we have to do it with CGI. The problem was with that scene is in order for me to imagine I could raise the stakes of the original, I had the idea, well, rather than just smash a bunch of cars, what if it decapitates two guys, that's cool. Uh Um, But they didn't, and again, I wasn't around for the post. So rather than take their heads off, they just kind of did like a blood splash. And to this day, when I see it, I was like, it would have been just as easy to take their heads off. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> you could have painted it out in the same click that they added the blood, you know? So so that one, it's funny to me because people actually do seem to find that scene amusing. But to me, it's sort of like an epic failure.
3: <laughs> I think that that might be why it's amusing. It's just so yeah. absurd that you can't help yeah. it.
2: <laughs> it's very like sharknado i think Uh
3: uh-huh yeah
0: So maybe you can help demystify uh, something that we have to talk about a lot as we watch every horror movie on Netflix, which is just kind of the business model behind a lot of these direct-to-video or direct-to-Netflix movies. I mean, uh, uh, even if the budget wasn't where it should have been, a lot of money was spent on this movie, and it went straight to VOD, straight to Netflix. How are they making their money back? What's the, what's the incentive behind making these movies in the first place?
2: Um, It's like low risk, low reward, I would say. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's not a fraction of the money that they would spend on on a film that they would really get behind on a marketing level. Um, I think there's just an international demand for content and there's a lot of streaming sites and, you know, like A lot of cable networks and so they can kind of work it out in advance you know that that they're delivering a certain amount of product like that's their obligation so they're sort of you know signed a deal with a number of distributors to give them five horror movies and two science fiction movies and one rom-com and so that's already paid for so they basically know as long as they don't spend over a certain amount of money the network is the, the the distribution is already in place for whatever mm-hmm. they give them, and they're trusted that they're going to give a product that's going to be consistently up to up to the standards of what they've sort of agreed to. So in this case, it was clear to me that the higher ups had pitched that they were going to deliver a, a straight horror movie, and what they got was a quirky action comedy. And we're like, oh fuck, we said we you know we have to fill the slate of horror movies we've been promising to these people, so let's try to make this as much as we can into into a, a horror movie. So it's 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 kind of just a, a network that already exists that sort of has a price pricing model, and as long as they sort of follow the guidelines and don't make total garbage, they can keep making straight-to-video movies. Mm-hmm. If that answers the question.
0: Yeah.
1: So when you reached out to us, which was, again, so kind, kind of you to do, I was really interested by one thing you said in your initial email, where you said uh, that making this movie was the worst year of your life. And... <laughs> I'm just wondering, you know, you, you, you've touched on this a bit already, but I mean, just emotionally, what was this experience like for you? It sounds like it had to have been pretty. And and was
0: the worst year of your life just because of what happened on the post-production side or was the shoot itself uh, exhausting?
2: I mean, the shoot was, I mean, you know, going into a, a low budget genre film, like you can do a low budget comedy or drama. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, ways you can do a low budget film and do it really, really well. Um, But when you're promising, you know, action and kills and gore and special effects, you know, going into it, it's going to be difficult. I mean, I would say that compared to Death Race, everyone in Peru was so stoked to be working on a movie that even though it was kind of like we were piecing it together out of garbage, like everybody was so happy and so supportive, whereas like the Bulgarian crews, they're mostly doing second unit for big action movies. Like they all do like the second units for the Expendables and things like that. So they weren't kind of as happy to be there. They were just like punching the clock. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of like, it didn't feel like this great, like, oh guys, we're gonna end this together. It was more like, today I slum it on your movie.
1: You know, um,
2: <laughs> what is this with guy in hat? This is stupid, <laughs> like. <laughs> So I wouldn't say that it was like a, an amazingly fun day-to-day experience, but it was okay. It was fine. I mean, I love working with actors. I kind of feel like that's the thing I like the most about the process is, is like, you know, having the acting be good. That's the thing I sort of pride myself in is finding good people and, you know, make making the scenes make sense. And so I enjoyed that part of it, but really the, the trauma came after because i had been putting all my eggs in this basket of like this idea of doing straight to video movies for universal and building this relationship with them and i really had finally thought that my life made sense i the project caused me to join the dga um so i was now a dga member and i had health insurance and it finally felt like the uncertainty of the profession that i chose i'd finally landed on my feet you know i was finally going to be working consistently and knowing where my next paycheck was coming from and making things that although aren't super ambitious are fun and right up my alley. So I I had this amazing feeling when I got home that I had I had finally done it, you know. <laughs> um, and then when this happened, it completely pulled the rug out from under me where, you know, I I was on the outs with these people and I didn't know what was next. You know, I had been invested in with them for like three years at this point and i hadn't really been pursuing anything else or any other relationships with anybody or writing any other scripts or doing anything you know this had been my this was my new goal this was my new path and so when i you know realized that they were never going to talk to me again i was i was floored you know I, i didn't know where to how to pick up the pieces i didn't know where to go next um i didn't have a source of income i you know like it was like the highest high and then just gone and then spending the next year just being like well what the fuck do i do now like how, where do i go from here you know so i would say that success that leads to a dead end in many ways is worse than no success at all like if i had spent a career like if you try to be an actor or a director or a writer or whatever and you just don't get anywhere you'll move on at a young age by the time you're a certain age you know and this is like people i know here in la you come out here to be an actor spend about two three years can't get a single audition and then they go okay i'm moving on with my life and then they have the time to do that, but when you 're a forty year old fucker like me, and you get that far and then it ends you 're like, "Oh shit, what am I supposed to do? like go intern somewhere like be the saddest assistant in the world, like doing coffee runs for minimum wage, like what the fuck do I do so that 's kind of the very sad answer to your question
3: <laughs> <laughs> well how how are you doing now? I mean it been some time um... Do you have any projects in the works or, or any any prospects in the industry right now?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I picked up the pieces. I started writing things again. Um, I spent a good amount of time developing other projects, different different scripts, uh, TV pitches, movie pitches, things like that. I managed to get, like, work at a startup, um, which was a great relief. I mean, it's still a startup, so it's not incredibly stable, but I'm not, like, you know, worried about paying the bills at least. Uh, mm-hmm you know and I, I you know i pitched a tv show to tbs last week um i'm still in the works you know but it's like the hardest thing is finding a balance between having these creative aspirations or these dreams to to get things made knowing what a how difficult that is and what what the odds are and how much time it takes and then figuring out how you're going to sort of live and survive between that and i would say that the fact of the matter is is most people that are successful in this industry have a backup like they have money in the bank or they have some other thing they can rely on sort of and unfortunately i i didn't do that you know i i went all in so naively thinking that you could just kind of make it work forever um but i'm okay you know i'm still doing stuff i mean i i i've got stuff in the works it's just you never know when it's going to happen or if it's going to happen and obviously everything's in turmoil right now anyway because of the pandemic so no one in this business really knows what what's going to happen next you know or how things are going to pick up
0: well beyond just you know making your living what do you what what's your dream like what kind of projects do you really uh have a passion for like like what what's your dream movie my dream movie
2: would have probably been death race but with a hundred million dollar budget Mm -hmm. that would have been that would have been my dream movie like um if there was any market to make uh sort of fun action sci-fi with that old school dash of exploitation with big ideas and and you know gratuitous violence (laughs) i think total recall the original total recall is probably like that would be the kind of stuff i'd want to make i don't know if i make that anymore but you know i like comedies too I, I like things that are funny i like things that are original i mean i've done all kinds of genres at this point but to, to just make good good stuff and to have it get seen and to not you know to get paid a decent amount i mean that's all i, I really want uh, i don't need to be like making the next avengers movie to be happy
1: mm-hmm. So I'm kind of curious to ask a little bit more about your relationship with criticism. You know, we were listening to your um, WTF interview, which was super interesting. And uh, you I mentioned... I in so
2: much trouble, by the way. I got in so much trouble with that. <laughs> yeah. Why? I thought I was being really nice. Um, I thought I was being really nice because there was a lot of things I didn't say that had happened behind the scenes. But I guess they were really mad because I had said the budget.
1: Oh,
3: what? Oh, uh,
2: <laughs> Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know. Yeah because like, I was like, well, it was supposed to cost a million, but it probably cost 300k i don't I don't know like I got in trouble <laughs> for that mm-hmm. um, but I don't really care anymore now. it's a point yeah <laughs> I'll say, you know, what, am I, what, what are they gonna do
1: <laughs> yeah I, w- I was interested when uh, you were talking in that interview about uh, the reception to virtually heroes and and how that really I think you may have used the word that it kind of crushed you. Um, But obviously you, you know, you seem to have a pretty solid relationship and a pretty even keel about the, you know, mixed to negative um, reception for Road to Revenge. What is your relationship with criticism and how has that evolved over the course of your career?
2: (laughs) Oh, God. Uh, I mean, (laughs) you know, it is tough. It is tough that there's this like a tour model and people don't really know what goes on behind the scenes. They don't know what what anyone does on a set. They, most people I'd say don't even know what a producer does or what a producer is. Um, it is annoying. Like I, I actually am fine with people criticizing a film because it sort of validates some of your own criticisms about it. It, it does hurt more when they single me out. That's the thing. Like when it's like they perceive certain decisions I made as intentional that may or may, may, or may not have anything to do with me. Um, and But most of the time, I don't care. I think the, the Sundance thing was kind of crushing because much like the, get, joining the DGA and making the car, it was like, oh, I'm in, I'm, I'm finally in, I'm at Sundance. It's all gonna happen. And then everyone's like, yeah, worst film ever. This guy's a piece of shit. This guy ruined my childhood. So that was kind of my first my first taste of it. And I was, you know, it was, tough but I I learned right away that you can't get super invested in what people say but you know every once in a while you get kind of drunk and maudlin at two o'clock in the morning and you google the name of one of your movies and you see someone did a podcast about it and you say I shouldn't listen to this but then you think well maybe they'll say something nice and then you listen to every horror movie on Netflix slightly intoxicated very late at night and you go God, I really want to tell them the actual story. And you go, I shouldn't send this email. I shouldn't send it. I really shouldn't send it. And then you send it. And here well, we are. we're so
3: glad you did. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a complicated thing of like, knowing that maybe the final product isn't as good as you'd want it to be, hoping that you don't take too much of the fall for it, but also having this incredible need to maybe like, lighten up the mood, you know, just like make it more of a dialogue, like it's a process. And so, you know, people know about the process a little bit more, you know, maybe they'll, I don't know, you know, maybe they'll be smarter the next time when they say that I suck.
1: Well, yeah, I think, you know, there's this tendency, and I include myself and, and all three of us in this uh, to, you know, you see a bad, bad movie, air quotes, and you, the the tendency is to want to knock on it and to take the easy shots at it sometimes. And I think it is important to have that empathy. And I'm really glad that you've given us the chance to, you know, empathize with you more and empathize with this movie more, especially a movie, you know, I did not expect to empathize with The Car Road to Revenge. So thank you for doing that.
2: (laughs) You know, it's like, I think that people have a tendency to see things that come out of the media as like they're sucking on the teat of some, you know, monolithic thing and they resent it when the when the milk is sour, like they think this I'm I expect this amount of entertainment to come into my life. And and when it's not what I expected, then I'm mad at the at the media overseers for failing to provide me with the content that they're supposed to. And I think at the end of the day, it's like, it's just a bunch of people like trying their best to, mm-hmm. you know, weather a complicated industry. And so it's like, don't you don't have to be too mad about it. Like, you know, like if, <laughs> I remember one guy watched it was a review of Frank and Cindy on Netflix and he was like, thanks for nothing, nut bucks. I'm, like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm entitled. <laughs> like, why are you mad at Netflix? Like, just, like you like, you you have a real complicated relationship with Netflix, man. Like,
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to ask a little bit about what your relationship with Netflix is, and if you have one. And because I mean, we're going through, we're trying to watch, you know, what what maybe one day would have been the kind of cult exploitation movies of a of a different era. You know, now there's just a whole bunch of stuff on Netflix that's that's small budget uh, horror, small budget science fiction. Do you ever go into the weeds on any of that stuff?
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. I mean, you know, I, I watch a lot of their, a lot of the stuff on there. Like I meet up with my friends and we'll kind of just pick a random one, like sorority house massacre. Okay. You know, whatever. Um, but you know, at one point I had four films on Netflix and I was wondering, I was like, does anyone else have four films on Netflix? Is that a record? Like, does anyone? <laughs> And I I have their email from like when I had to talk to for them to acquire um, Frank and Cindy, the remake, because my whole thing with the remake was I just wanted people to see the documentary. So I made sure to get a contact there and was like, can you please just take the documentary? I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you for free. Just put it on there as a companion piece. Like I'm begging you. So I, I have a relationship with them. And every time I would so I, I, I email them every once in a while and I'm like, oh, I have a script, it's that guy, you, you know, you got a lot of my stuff on Netflix, sorry to bug you, but whoa, why don't you check this out? And then, you know, they'll read it and say, yeah, I wasn't good enough. So I, <laughs> I, I don't know how to, don't quite know how to get in the door I, with them. I'm not really sure, you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, they're nice enough. I mean, they're a monolith, you know, they're like a, they're like a city state here in LA. Hmm um they don't pay very much i'll say that much
3: we were wondering about that but i didn't want to ask
2: yeah they don't they don't i mean it's it's not an incredibly profitable thing and it doesn't pay residuals to actors or writers or directors it's not i don't think it's i don't want to bite the hand of the overlords but i don't think it's like the best thing for the industry to to have a service where you can't verify how much your stuff is getting watched or get paid you know Mm -hmm. but it is what it is. If it means more things getting made, then that's fine too. You know.
0: Do you have any uh, favorite oddball things that you've discovered on Netflix along the lines of a *Sorority House Massacre* or whatever? Because <laughs> that's what we're that's what our show is basically all about. You know, we're 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 going through, we're trying to watch everything, and we're trying to find the the hidden gems of the the horror catalog on Netflix.
2: Yeah, you know, it's funny because I watch so many, and it's hard to keep. Track of, of all the ones I've seen, but I did like that one. I thought that babysitter one was pretty good. Did you watch that one? That one was all right. Oh, then and then one about,
3: that?
2: yeah, that was okay. Yeah, I had fun was, with it, that. Yeah, that was okay. I mean, for like, because I thought it was going to be more like a bargain basement thing and it was a little more polished mm-hmm. for a movie I'd never heard of than I was expecting and a little more love had gone into it. Mm-hmm. I also like that, that heavy metal, the death metal one. Did you see that one? It's like about the death metal kids who.
0: Summon a demon or deathgasm. Yeah. I saw that on Shudder, but yeah, I like that a lot. That
2: oh, was good. I mean, honestly, I watched most of, I discovered recently that Amazon prime has apparently just bought entire catalogs of cult movies. Um, ones that I was never able to find before. Um, and so i watch watched more movies on Amazon prime now that are sort of culty movies that, had previously been unavailable so i tend to spend more time there honestly things like picasso trigger
3: and assault of the killer bimbos and you know things like that yeah they have they have a deal with with like vinegar syndrome and a lot of other companies so they have just stuff that you had never have been able to find elsewhere but unfortunately yeah. we because of the nature of our podcast we're kind of stuck on netflix for the yeah. moment <laughs> um
2: i really liked eyes without a face have you seen that one
3: I don't know Uh, if that's on Netflix or not. The Franju movie?
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. I think that's only on Prime, but I don't remember where I saw it, but that was one I just saw recently that I really liked.
3: Thanks. But yeah,
2: sorry to be of no help.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I'm curious, you know you've expressed both in this conversation and in your email kind of some anxiety about coming forth and and being this candid about this whole experience. You know you mentioned how uh, you sent it at, sent the email drunkenly at 2 am and and we're like, why did I do that? So what are your feelings right now about having come forth and put this a little more out in the public view?
2: I mean, I don't know if it's weakness on my part to even like feel the need to say anything about anything you know um but i just thought it would be actually after hearing the podcast i thought it would just be kind of fun uh you know telling people the inside story uh i think that at the end of the day if if it were to come to universal's attention then somehow this has become way more popular than i would have anticipated it to and that's probably fine you know what i mean like it's like a fine problem to have The statistical likelihood that they're going to ever hear about this seems low to me. And if they did, then that meant that I guess it had gone viral. So what the fuck, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I
0: I hope this goes viral and I hope uh, it gets people to hire you, uh, (laughs) you know, instead (laughs) of instead dismissing you on the basis of the car road to revenge.
3: (laughs) But yeah, like
2: I said, if, if enough people had heard it, that universal find out about it, then that's a fine problem to have. I mean, what are they going to say? I'm not lying, you know? It's not libel. Mm-hmm. So bring it, universe.
0: Oh, they'll just, they'll just write <laughs> us a letter and they'll shut us down. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, be your problem. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> All right. So do you have any other thoughts? Anything else you got in, a, in, in your soul that you need to get out today?
2: Uh, I would say this. If, if you're curious to see the Frank and Cindy movie, the documentary that is on so Netflix, don't watch it on Netflix. Um, unfortunately, the, the I don't know what happened with the deliverables, but I tried to get them a mastered version of it, and somehow the version that they ended up getting was a very ugly uh, transfer of the original like DV material. So the original DV already doesn't look very good by today's standards, but whatever they put on Netflix looks extra bad. Mm. So I would say email me and I'll send you a link to the proper version of Frank and Cindy, which is probably the only truly great thing I feel like I've ever made
3: and I highly recommend it. And I'm gj at bionicfilms.com. I'm definitely gonna hit you up. I was just watching the trailer last night and was fascinated by it.
1: Well, thank you so much for uh, reaching out to us again. This has really been delightful. And and speaking as the person who did have the most negative reaction to the movie on <laughs> our on our review, this has given me so much new perspective and and uh, an appreciation for you know what you did and and what you went through. So thanks for uh, putting yourself out there.
2: Yeah, no problem. Do you know you guys? Do you know that Patrick looks a little like Clark Kent? Right
1: now, a little. Yeah, I, I do get bit. that on occasion. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it's the glasses. It's the glasses.
2: Congrats! You know, that's a good thing. <laughs>
1: All
2: right.
3: Well, thanks for having me, guys. Thanks All so right. much, UJ. This was awesome. Thank, Thank you so care. much. Take care.
0: <laughs> what a what a guy! What a guy! I really appreciate him coming by and, and telling us, uh, adding a little insight. You know, it's always always great to have a little insight on these movies because we really we don't know what we're talking about most of the time.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we have, you know, we know what second unit directors are, but I didn't know how much of their shit actually shows up in a final finished film. Yeah, I would never have expected it. I always thought the
0: second unit was like, you know, uh, uh, cutaway shots and stuff like that.
3: No, like, like Lord of the Rings is like probably like 70% second unit. Like all those wow. giant battle sequences and stuff. They did a great job. They did, they great did job. a great job. That was very illuminating and he was super cool to talk to. A cult movie lover a man after my own heart yeah
1: you know we always have so many questions uh you know so many of those how did this get made kind of questions when we watch these movies and uh yeah just such a treat to have someone reach out to us and uh want to unburden his soul about the experience of making one of these movies for once so i'm so glad we got to do that
0: well would you guys like to know what we're watching next week because i think it's my turn to pick
1: Tell us, tell us. Might as well tell us.
0: Oh, Steven does not trust me. <laughs> uh, I've decided that we're going to watch an oldie but a goodie. Uh, probably something you both have seen before, but I'm I'm eager to go back and revisit it. Uh, let's watch The Ring.
3: Oh, oh, hell yeah.
2: Wow, okay. All right, a classic. Um,
3: one of the few movies I've ever seen that really fucked me up.
1: Snake, what have you done? You changed the future. You've created a time paradox.
0: Yeah, so in between the time we recorded this episode and when it's actually coming out, The Ring was taken off of Netflix, uh, so we can't watch it. Well, I can still watch it because I own it on Blu-ray like a like a civilized person, but, uh, but the other guys can't, and you, the listener, can't find it on Netflix because it's gone. So we are changing my pick. I'm changing my pick to the film Don't Knock Twice. Haven't seen it. Can't wait to see it. I've been seeing it on the Netflix catalog, and I've just been wondering, why can't we knock twice? We're going to find out. I can't wait. So that'll be next week. Don't miss it. Very excited. And until then, for every horror movie on Netflix, I'm Chris. I'm Patrick. I'm Steven. See you next time.